He was the elephant, she was the dove. She was the kid who was already dying when they met, he the old man who'd outlive her broken body. Yet at the same time, she was the mother, he the child. As she put it, at every moment, he is my child, my child born every moment, daily from myself. And he admitted, the more I loved her, the more I wanted to hurt her. Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera's relationship was a story of contradictions, of uncomfortable differences, of agonizing heartbreak and betrayal. But amidst those cracks on the canvas were deeper ties, ties that transcended the dangerous shifting ground of romance. Together, they threw themselves into life as individuals, as political revolutionaries, and as artists. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners, and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their legacies are inextricably intertwined. We'll look at their lives side by side to see how their paths converged, how they impacted one another's fates, and ultimately how they were remembered. Today, we're looking at Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, one of the most famous or infamous couples in the history of the art world. The painters are known for their tumultuous personal lives and their glittering social circle from New York to Paris back to Mexico City. But beneath the whirlwind of parties and high-profile lovers, Frida and Diego found deep solidarity, support, and inspiration in their relationship. Ultimately, none of their personal drama can come close to outweighing the legacy of the work they labored over side by side. Coming up, the extraordinary lives of the elephant and the dove. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1922, Diego Rivera was 36 years old and finally starting to find his footing as an artist. He'd been to Europe, studied with Paris's avant-garde, and brought the techniques he learned home to Mexico City. Now he was struggling to blend those techniques with the imagery of his native Mexico and his ideas about the country's future. 
In the early 1920s, Mexico, and especially Mexico City, was a hotbed of political and social upheaval. The country was emerging from a long decade of civil war, in which conservative, American-backed factions of the country's elite battled against an uprising of the middle class and peasantry. Ultimately, one of the left-wing factions triumphed and in 1917 penned a new constitution. President José Venustiano Carranza took the helm and the country was set on a path towards social and economic reform. However, Mexico City's intelligentsia was not entirely charmed by Carranza's new government. It ignored some of the most radical elements of the 1917 constitution, like broad land reform, and many felt that Carranza wasn't doing enough to reject the threat of American imperialism. In fact, for many of the capital's intellectuals, Diego Rivera among them, Russian communism was the ideal benchmark for change. Still, the government was creating programs to benefit Mexico City's vibrant intellectual community, like their National Murals Scheme, which provided up-and-coming young Mexican artists with work, including Diego Rivera. In 1922, Diego was working on one of these murals at the National Preparatory School in Mexico City, a piece he called Creation. It would eventually be considered his first significant work of art. But painting it was difficult, and not just because the large mural was labor-intensive and time-consuming. While it focused largely on religious themes, rather than the left-wing politics that would come to define Diego's works, he still felt threatened by the school's right-wing students lingering in the back of the auditorium. The conflicts that had exploded during the revolution were far from fully resolved. Diego carried a gun with him as he worked, just in case. Then there were lesser distractions, childish voices ringing out through the hall with teasing comments about his models. One day, one of those childish voices emerged out of the shadows, but this time it wasn't to tease. Diego would remember the incident this way. She was dressed like any other high school student, but her manner immediately set her apart. She had unusual dignity and self-assurance, and there was a strange fire in her eyes. She looked straight up at me. Would it cause you any annoyance if I watched you at work? Diego, charmed by the curious student, acquiesced. He was further charmed when his jealous wife started taunting the little girl, and she merely stared at the older woman resolutely. In the end, she sat watching him work for three hours. Diego didn't know it yet, but that little girl was named Frida Kahlo. At the time, she was 15 years old and not yet painting herself. Nothing came of the chance encounter, for now. But perhaps Frida thought of it three years later, in 1925, after a streetcar crashed into her bus and a handrail impaled her through the back. Bones throughout her body were shattered. Doctors weren't sure if she'd survive, but her tenacity seemed to pull her through, along with a new hobby perfect for months of bed rest, painting. Frida's parents encouraged her new interest. Like Diego Rivera, the family was part of Mexico City's intelligentsia, not wealthy, but well-off and politically and artistically inclined. They counted female as well as male artists amongst their social circle, 
Guillermo Kahlo was himself a photographer, and he lent his daughter a set of oil paints. Frida's mother purchased her a specially made easel that made it easier to work in bed, and that's how she got started. By 1928, at age 21, she was long out of bed and still painting, but she wasn't sure if her work was anything to hang her hat on. She wanted an expert opinion. So she turned back to Diego Rivera, now an established painter well-known for his politically charged murals. This is how he described the meeting. I was at work on one of the uppermost frescoes at the Ministry of Education building one day when I heard a girl shouting up to me, Diego, please come down from there. I have something important to discuss with you. I turned my head and looked down from my scaffold. On the ground beneath me stood a girl of about 18. She had a fine, nervous body topped by a delicate face. Her hair was long, dark and thick eyebrows met above her nose. They seem like the wings of a blackbird, their black arches framing two extraordinary brown eyes. Naturally, Diego was intrigued. His reputation as a ladies' man was perhaps even more established than his reputation as a painter. So he climbed down and listened to what the girl had to say, only to find that she had no interest in a flirtation. She said, I didn't come here for fun. I have to work to earn my livelihood. I've done some paintings which I want you to look over professionally. I want an absolutely straightforward opinion. I want you to tell me whether you think I can become a good enough artist to make it worth my while to go on. Diego agreed and was immediately impressed with what he saw. Frida was already working on the honest, warts and all, often unflattering self-portraits she'd eventually become known for. They expressed the pain of her accident and the pain she would live with for the rest of her life as a result. And yet, she had a unique ability to render ugliness and pain deeply, poignantly beautiful. As Diego put it, the canvases revealed an unusual energy of expression, precise delineation of character and true severity. They showed none of the tricks in the name of originality that usually mark the work of ambitious beginners. They had a fundamental plastic honesty and an artistic personality of their own. So Diego gave Frida a serious, sincere response. In my opinion, no matter how difficult it is for you, you must continue to paint. Now, Diego was a notorious liar and exaggerator. For instance, at one point he said he tried eating human brain. Unlikely. So it's difficult to know if his description of this encounter is exactly how he and Frida connected. It's more likely they met through mutual friends. Frida was a young woman about town in the same intelligentsia social circles as Diego. She could be found discussing politics and art at the same parties he attended. She'd even joined Diego and most of their friends as a member of the local Communist Party. But regardless, they did connect, and that connection quickly turned romantic. It was a whirlwind courtship. Frida was just 21, Diego now 42. Diego was divorced with a bad reputation from his many previous relationships and infidelities. Frida was still in constant pain from her accident. Diego was overweight, tall, and not particularly handsome. Frida, tiny and beautiful, if fragile. As Frida's disapproving parents put it, 
coining a moniker that has lasted almost a hundred years. He was an elephant, she a dove. But Frida and Diego thrilled each other, and as they gallivanted around Mexico City, the energy of their relationship was infectious. They were together at parties and at Communist Party meetings, at protests and at art shows. And then, in 1929, they were together at the altar. Freda's parents swallowed their concerns and hoped that Diego would keep his act together, that he'd be loyal to their daughter, that he'd stick by her side through the good times and the bad. Only half of that wish came true. Just as the Kalos feared, Diego was never loyal. He was a cheater. He even slept with Frida's own sister, a betrayal that may have contributed to the couple's divorce in 1939. As Frida famously put it, I have suffered two serious accidents in my life, one in which a streetcar ran over me. The other accident is Diego. It's notable that she equates the emotional damage of their relationship to the physical damage that left her in near-constant pain for her entire life. And yet, the couple remarried just a year after their divorce. They might not have had a traditional or even healthy relationship. Their love was volatile and inconsistent. Frida had her own affairs with both men and women. But in the end, as Diego put it, Frida was the most important fact in my life, and she would continue to be up to the moment she died. Or as Frida put it in a letter to Diego, I love you more than my own skin. It was a deep-rooted, explosive partnership, one with equally explosive political and artistic consequences. Coming up, the lifelong political allegiance that tied Frida and Diego together as comrades, even when they couldn't be lovers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. When Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera married in 1929, Frida was comparatively fresh on the Mexico City political scene. Diego, meanwhile, had a decades-long and complicated relationship with many of his fellow leftists. Almost all of his art revolved around leftist themes like workers' rights and frequently referenced communist ideology. Like most of Mexico City's political radicals, Diego was dedicated to using his art to shape a united, independent Mexican identity that rejected imperialistic influences. And yet, many radicals were off-put by Diego's willingness to work with governmental institutions they saw as regressive. As he got more famous in Mexico, he even capitalized on his success by painting murals for America's wealthy industrialists. In the 1930s and 40s, he traveled around the U.S. working on commissions for the Fords and the Rockefellers. So much for rejecting the U.S. and its influence. Diego was part of the problem, his critics cried, betraying his own ideals and the ideals of the party. 
As far as Diego was concerned, working on government commissions or for the capitalists was simply a chance to spread his message and get paid. And after all, what's wrong with a little controversy? He thrived on it in his personal and political life. But he'd stick to his ideological guns when it counted, always. For example, when it came to that commission at the Rockefeller Center in New York City. The design had been approved by the Rockefeller family. They knew the piece was titled Man at the Crossroads, that it would contrast socialism and capitalism, that it would portray workers as heroic and imposing. They'd commissioned a Rivera, after all. They knew what they were getting themselves into. And they were all right with that. They wanted to make people think. What the Rockefellers didn't know about Man at the Crossroads was that it would feature a portrait of Vladimir Lenin himself, one of Russia's revolutionary leaders. And that they certainly did not want. While America's industrial tycoons might indulge in some intellectual discussion of socialism, they wouldn't condone revolution. As soon as they realized just whose face was at the center of their mural, they told Diego to take Lenin out. But Diego, for all his ethical bendiness, decided this was a line he wouldn't cross. He would work for the industrialists, but he wouldn't alter his vision for them. The Rockefellers would not accept that. They ordered him to stop working on his mural immediately. Then they sent in workmen to destroy it. Frida was perhaps not so devastated about the destruction. She hated New York's social scene. In fact, she hated most of the American cities Diego's commissions took them to. As she put it in a letter, the most important thing for everyone in Gringolandia is to have ambition and become somebody. And frankly, I don't have the least ambition to become anybody. This is, in some ways, a misleading statement. Frida was as much a showman as her husband. She liked to dress in vibrant, attention-grabbing indigenous Mexican clothing, whether in Mexico City or New York. And it wasn't simply the way she'd grown up. Her father was descended from German Jews, and in her family's cosmopolitan urban household, she'd grown up wearing mostly modern Western-style clothing. But as an adult, Frida adopted indigenous dress as part of her politics, as a sign that, like Diego and many of their friends in Mexico City, she believed Mexico deserved to preserve its own unique identity. America's rabid imperializing would not subdue her or her country. Freda certainly had an interest in being someone. It was just a very different someone from the ideal selves of these American capitalists. Someone whose political convictions and artistic sensibility were always on display, even on her own body. After all, she could never really forget about her body because, thanks to her accident, it was always in pain. Still, Frida pushed through her constant pain and even managed to have fun during her visits to America in her own sly way. Politically pointed fun that expressed her displeasure with the U.S.'s many problems like bigotry and inequality. For instance, when she famously asked notorious anti-Semite Henry Ford if he was Jewish over dinner. But Frida, like Diego, also turned to art to express her dissatisfaction with Gringolandia and her own unique political convictions. Unfortunately, her work didn't garner the same success as her husband's. In the early 1930s, 
few people were paying close attention to Frida's art outside her own social circle. And in fact, throughout her life, her work would constantly play second fiddle to Diego's. She was often treated as the famous painter's wife who charmingly paints in her own right. Even today, an updated relic of this unfortunate prejudice lingers in the assumptions that Frida's artwork was always about personal subjects. Rivera was the political painter. Frida's art dealt with identity and her lifelong struggle with physical pain. Or so the narrative goes. As art historian Janice Helland argues, Kahlo's works have been exhaustively psychoanalyzed and thereby whitewashed of their bloody, brutal, and overtly political content, when really politics were a defining feature of her artwork. The politics Frida painted weren't always in the blunt, overt style of Rivera, with his portrait of Lenin, although she did occasionally work with direct references to key revolutionary figures. But more often, Helen explains, we see her politics in symbolism, for example, her frequent use of Aztec imagery. As Helen puts it, this emphasis on the Aztec, rather than the Mayan, Toltec, or other indigenous cultures, corresponds to Kahlo's political demand for a unified and independent Mexico. The Aztecs were a powerful nation, as Mexico could be if it rejected imperialist American influence. Another example, in 1933, the same year Diego painted his Man at the Crossroads, Frida painted My Dress Hangs There. It shows classic symbols of the American capitalist lifestyle. A toilet, a telephone, a sports trophy, and, most important of all, a dollar sign. Amidst a landscape of smoggy decay. While their relationships to their politics were not mirror images, Frida and Diego's radical leftist beliefs tied them together, even when their romantic relationship was in shambles. Nothing demonstrates this better than the Trotsky affair. It was 1936. Frida and Diego had separated the year before. They were still in contact, but their relationship was far from the vibrant, happy thing it had been when they went to the altar seven years before. Still, Diego came to Frida asking for help. Leon Trotsky, the Russian revolutionary, was living in exile after falling out with Stalin. Diego sympathized with Trotsky's version of communism over Stalin's, and he knew Frida did too. So together they forged a plan to give Trotsky safe haven in Mexico. Diego asked the Mexican president to grant Trotsky political asylum. And on the day of his arrival, Frida was there to meet him at the docks. She installed Trotsky and his wife in her own childhood home. And she famously went on to have a several months long affair with Trotsky. That bit was perhaps not the part of the episode that brought Frida and Diego back together, but in a way, it may have had a healing effect for the couple. Many commentators see it as Frida's revenge for Diego's affair with her sister. But ultimately, Frida and Diego's convictions tied them together, even when their romantic relationship faltered. As Frida put it, Diego is not anybody's husband and never will be, but he is a great comrade. But what really tied them together, even beyond death, wasn't politics. It was something broader. Art. Coming up, Frida and Diego's art and most unbreakable bond. Now back to the story. 
Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were lovers. They were comrades, but most of all, they were fellow artists. Their work was very different. Diego's best works were always his enormous murals, overwhelmingly large pieces that tackled overwhelmingly large topics, like industrialization and the Mexican Revolution. Some of his most famous murals are painted on the walls of the Detroit Institute of Arts and funded by Henry Ford. The frescoes depict the lives of Ford Motor Company's workers, toiling under the yoke of capitalism. Another of his best-known works is Dream of a Sunday Afternoon in the Alameda Central, originally painted at a Mexico City hotel. The work depicts a local park and the conflicts amongst the city's bourgeoisie in the wake of the Mexican Revolution. Frida, meanwhile, painted on a much smaller scale. And while her symbolism was often highly political, the explicit subject matter was usually more intimate. Her most famous works are her self-portraits. They include Henry Ford Hospital, which shows her broken body on an operating table after a miscarriage and symbolizes the taboo nature of remaining childless in Mexican society. Close-ups of her face, like self-portrait with thorn necklace and hummingbird, and The Two Fridas, which famously depicts two versions of the artist side by side. One the Frida Diego loved, and one the Frida he does not love. But for all their creative differences, art bound Frida and Diego together. It was what brought them together when they first met. It was the medium through which they expressed their politics, and it was the place where they could never stop loving, respecting, and uplifting one another. Even when they divorced, around the time of the separation, Diego told a reporter, I count Frida among the five or six most prominent modernist painters. Later in his autobiography, he noted, During the two years we lived apart, Frida turned out some of her best work. Frida, meanwhile, told a journalist in 1950, Diego showed me the revolutionary sense of life and the true sense of color. The couple's mutual admiration didn't mean that their artistic exchange was a perfectly mirrored one. Considering their age gap, Rivera acted as a mentor for Frida, but he was never her instructor. As Frida's biographer Hayden Herrera explains, wisely, though he did advise, Rivera refrained from teaching Frida. He did not want to spoil her inborn talent. The mutual admiration also didn't preclude the occasional sharp criticism. Herrera notes that Diego complained, Frida is too realistic. She has no illusions. Frida, meanwhile, felt Diego lacked sentiment. But still, ultimately, Frida and Diego were one another's biggest champions. Their criticisms prioritized one another's growth, and their artistic relationship was deeply generative and rewarding. They frequently painted one another. They always inspired one another, and they reveled in one another's talent until the bitter end. In 1953, 46-year-old Frida's fragile health was rapidly declining when she finally had her first solo exhibition in Mexico. She was carried into the exhibition on a stretcher and laid out on a four-poster bed. Diego later said, Anyone who attended could not but marvel at her great talent. Even I was impressed when I saw all her work together. Frida, meanwhile, seemed happy, but as one person in attendance noted, 
She acted happy, but she was trying very hard. As Diego put it, I thought afterwards that she must have realized she was saying goodbye to life. One of Frida's journal entries around the time of the show, playing off the title of one of her paintings, indicates that she wasn't quite ready to go. Tree of hope, keep firm. But by the next year, her last journal entry suggests that finally she was done with her goodbyes. I hope the exit is joyful and I hope never to return. Frida died on July 13, 1954. Perhaps it's to be expected that Rivera remarried a year later, this time to his longtime agent, Emma Ortado. But the story of Frida and Diego's artistic legacies was far from over. Even as he proceeded apace with remarriage, Diego formed a trust to transform Frida's house into a museum. To this day, it serves as a memorial to her art and creative legacy. Diego also insisted on gathering many of Frida's personal artifacts, clothes, letters, books, corsets, medicines, and sealed them up in the house's bathroom, along with some of his own belongings, a secret fate for their personal, lifelong entanglement. The romance could never be entirely extricated from the art. It had to be in the house, too, a part of the memory. Diego passed just three years after Frida at the age of 70. Meanwhile, their personal possessions slept on behind the sealed doors of the bathroom, forgotten by the museum's trust, until they were rediscovered in 2004, 47 years after Diego's death. In the interim, the vicissitudes of the art world, aided along by the civil rights and feminist movements, had dramatically reshaped the legacies of Frida and Diego. Diego, already a world-renowned muralist in his own time, has retained his reputation. He's celebrated as a founding father of the Mexican mural movement, and his frescoes loudly proclaim the story of his country's history, as well as the need to respect the workers at the bottom of the capitalist food chain. But now, he's often overshadowed by Frida's monumental fame. Frida had certainly accrued some success by the end of her lifetime. As biographer Herrera put it, she was no longer little Frida, but a celebrity in her own right. But, Herrera adds, her renown still had much to do with the fact that she was married to Diego Rivera. Today, that's not the case. The Tate Modern has called Frida one of the most significant artists of the 20th century. In 2016, Axel Stein, Sotheby's Latin American art chief, explained, In international art markets, works by Kahlo have fetched more than any other Latin American artist. But the contemporary reverence for Kahlo and Rivera extends beyond the opaque halls of the fine art market. Hayden Herrera's 1983 biography of Frida was an international bestseller. In 2002, it was adapted into the Academy Award-winning biopic Frida, starring and co-produced by Salma Hayek. While these works include Diego, Frida is undoubtedly the main character. Popular interest in Frida has gotten so intense that it's even been given a name, Frida Mania. This public mania often revolves around Frida's face, 
which has been pasted on clothing, for example, and her tumultuous personal life, from her gruesome bus accident, to her romance with Diego, to her various affairs with other famous intellectuals and artists. The focus on her image may stem from her most famous works, those warts and all, often unflattering self-portraits she started painting at the very beginning of her career and never stopped working on. The focus on her personal life is a testament to the drama she managed to pack into a tragically short number of years. But unfortunately, wherever the fascination comes from, it has often served to turn Frida into a symbol or a caricature and obscured her legacy as an artist and as a human being. Still, by putting the focus on Frida's relationship with Diego, Frida Mania does get one thing right, the importance the two artists had in each other's lives and careers. Diego was an inextricable central part of Frida's experience as a woman, as a political radical, and as an artist, just as she was to his. Together, Frida and Diego drew from the rich politics and history of their own radical Mexico. And in doing so, they created imagery for their nation that was as new as it was old. Diego's peasant women in braids, holding sheaths of wheat, have become as quintessentially Mexican today as Frida's agonized face and striking unibrow. As writer Carlos Fuentes puts it in his introduction to Frida's journals, Whatever its political failures, the Mexican Revolution was a cultural success. It revealed a nation to itself. It made clear the cultural continuity of Mexico, in spite of all the political fractures. It educated women like Frida Kahlo and men like Diego Rivera, making them realize all they had forgotten, all that they wanted to become. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Obituaries was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>